Hi, this is Wayne Zell, and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, your half hour of special guests and special topics that hopefully help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. And today, my special guest is my friend, Eli Cohen, who is the founding, one of the founding principals of GenTrust, a wealth management firm with offices in New York, Washington, Florida, and now Puerto Rico of all places. And that's pretty cool. So I, have you been to the Puerto Rico office yet, Eli? I, I have. It's, I mean, I, I travel less with COVID, but uh, I've been probably a half dozen times. Well, welcome to the show. I really appreciate your, your being with us today. It's going to be an education for all of us to, to hear what you have to say. Thrilled to be here. So a little background on Eli. I mentioned that he's with GenTrust, but he's also the uh, partner in charge of Catenary Alternative Asset Management. So we're going to talk about alternative investments today, which is going to be kind of cool. And I'll, I'll try to give a background on alternative investments in the educational moment at the end of this segment. But, you know, amazingly, Eli is a graduate with a, uh, an AB in economics from Harvard College. Then he went to Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School simultaneously, effectively, and got his JD and MBA from Harvard. So for, for some reason, I thought he'd end up being the, uh, the head of the Department of Justice or Attorney General of the United States, but instead he's running a wealth management firm. So what I wanted to know, Eli, is how did you get into wealth management from Harvard? Well, that's, everything's a winding story. But um, I, I, after graduate school, I was at Lehman Brothers and structured credit. Uh, left there uh, a month before Lehman Crash. failed. Uh, what is structured credit, by the way? Uh, well, credit derivatives. So we were at the heart of the financial crisis. My little sliver of the Lehman business was making money hand over fist, but we were arbitraging credit ratings uh, while packaging subprime corporate debt and subprime credit and moving it out off the balance sheet. Right. Um, and so we were at the heart of the financial crisis. I left there uh, um, to take a job in D.C., sort of better lucky than good, gave notice in May of 2008, worked June, July, moved my family back to D.C. in August uh, and um, watched Lehman go under in September um, and, and joined an institutional investment business called Strategic Investment Group where I helped uh, manage alternative investments there, uh, about $10 billion of alternative investments um, by the time I left. Uh, and I left to start GenTrust um, with two partners in New York and two in Miami. It's really the brainchild of my partner, Jim Besaw, who uh, had run rate derivatives at JP Morgan and Barclays, um, and then helped build a hedge fund called uh, Element Capital, which is now the largest macro fund uh, in the world, I believe. Um, and you know, how did I get here? Uh, I got into wealth management um, because Jim, who I became friendly with doing due diligence on Element, said to me, you know, uh, nobody I know who started their career inside an investment bank working on a trading floor has ever hired a bank to manage their personal money. Um, <laughs> and I realized I resembled that remark. I would never have hired Lehman to manage my own money, um, but also so did everybody I knew. Uh, and so we had an interesting network of proprietary traders, hedge fund principals, private equity uh, partners uh, who knew of the conflicts of interest or experienced sort of firsthand the conflicts of interest in that bank model. And we thought, man, we could do a better job than that. Those guys want to talk to people who uh, invested for big institutions, taken risk, sat in a risk seat in the parlance of uh, the industry uh, mm -hmm. for a living. 
Um, uh, and the wealth management industry just doesn't have those people for the most part. Uh, for the most part, the wealth management industry is dominated by the banks uh, themselves uh, who have, you know, private wealth groups, uh, which are subject to, you know, aren't fiduciaries and have a lot of conflicts of interest, in my view. Uh, um, but in the view of everybody who's worked in the banks as well, in my experience. Um, but also, uh, and then folks who've spun out of those institutions to avoid the conflicts of interest, but they tend to be sales folks. They tend to be client service folks. They don't tend to be folks who've, um, who've taken investing, uh, you know, seriously as the core of their career. Um, and so we saw an opportunity. We saw an opportunity to launch a business focused uh, on getting the investments right for our clients and being really sophisticated on the investment side. And we had a client base that we thought would appreciate that, which was our network of hedge fund managers, private equity principals who invest for a living, uh, but don't have time to do with their own money what they'd want done um, because they're so busy uh, managing big pools of capital for big institutions. Um, and that's, that's who we started our business with as clients. And that's what we've built around. And now, obviously, we've expanded well beyond that um, because other people benefit from the invest investment sophistication as well. How, uh, how did you come to get to know the guys who are your principals and partners in Florida? Yeah, well, so that's, a, that's an interesting one. I, you know, I, I mentioned how I met Jim, and Jim um, already uh, had, had a bit of a relationship through a couple private equity deals they'd done together. Um, Jim and the Element Partners were uh, um, opportunistic in terms of looking for interesting private equity style deals. Um, and so were uh, George Perez and Guy uh, Sakaris, who were my partners in Miami, uh, and they'd come together around a few deals. What Jim realized, and I realized he was right, um, was that he and I had never actually talked to human beings before. Um, I managed money for large institutions with boards. Uh, Jim managed balance sheet capital for JP and then for Barclays, um, and the clients of Element all had to invest a minimum of $50 million. So the people he was talking to, um, the people, the, the institutions he was talking to were writing very big checks. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you uh, all of a sudden you get a hedge fund portfolio manager who says, yeah, I'll hire you. You know, I got 50 million bucks in my own fund. I got 10 or $15 million I've set off to the side that I've been managing with a spreadsheet and a bunch of Vanguard funds, but I could really use your help to make it, to make it sing. Um, you know, great, let's do it. Um, by the way, should I put this in a trust? Um, who do I talk to about whether I should put it in a trust? Um, how do I think about taxes? Uh, you know, all of those things, reporting um, for individuals, all those things Jim and I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. uh, George and Guy did. They had been uh, Merrill Wealth Advisors for uh, a couple decades, and they were looking to spin out with an investment team to provide better investment services to their clients without the conflicts of interest. They got tired of essentially B of A saying, look, you get paid if you get these products into your clients. That's not the way they wanted to operate with their clients. Um, but they knew that they needed an investment team uh, that would provide, you know, really first rate institutional quality, sophisticated investment advice, given who their clients were. Um, and to Jim's credit, and you know, once he said it, I realized he was right. Uh, we needed folks who actually knew how to communicate with individuals uh, and families uh, and talk about how their lives change over time um, and, and grow with them. Uh, and, that, and that's how we all came together. 
So their client base is really very different from your client base, having experienced some of them. And I think the, uh, the interesting thing about what GenTrust is offering, and I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that, is the so-called sophisticated investment advisory services and risk analysis that you all do. And so what I'd like, what really I think distinguishes you all from many of the investment advisory firms out there is that in a very small firm, essentially, you've got some very sophisticated people. Tell me about the sophistication that people like Jim and his team and you bring to the investment process that just doesn't exist in the big bulge bracket firms, except at the very highest levels. Sure. So that's right, that we have a very disparate client base, a lot of variety, um, but they all benefit from the investment sophistication. I mean, right. when we wrote down at the start of our business, um, uh, you know, why do we exist? Uh, it was sophisticated investment advice without conflicts of interest. And we thought that actually differentiated us from just about everybody out there. So what does sophisticated mean? Yes. Uh, it means starting with the risk. Uh, most folks sort of build a you know, financial plan, I guess, around you know, a return target or things like that. Um, you can't do that in investing and, and no institution would manage money that way. Um, uh, you have to start with an understanding of the level of risk that a, that a portfolio can tolerate um, and, and then build um, a set of tools to analyze uh, how, how a portfolio is likely to respond across a variety of, of scenarios. So um, look, uh, is that referred to as stress testing? Uh, sure. So uh, scenario testing or stress testing. Most people, when when we found in the sort of private wealth space, when folks are asked, you know, what's what's the risk in my portfolio or what what's going on with my portfolio, you end up with a pie chart and an alloc. You know, here's your allocation. That doesn't tell you anything. Uh, um, you know, sixty percent equities, forty percent bonds, fifty fifty, something like that. Okay, well, um, we're about, you know, we're, we're uh, uh, you, know, you know, there's war in Ukraine. Um, what, how, does, how is that likely to impact a portfolio? Um, oil spiked from 80 bucks to $109. Um, interest rates have started to rally. Um, uh, equities are down 10% year to date. Uh, what happens if, if, if Putin uh, moves up to the Balkans, I mean, not to the Balkans, to the Baltics, excuse me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, those scenarios are uh, part of any hedge fund risk management because because risks in financial markets are nonlinear, by which I mean the relate two things. First, the relationship between asset classes is not a single number. There are environments in which bonds and equities move in different directions and they hedge each other. And by the way, we've been in that environment for most of the last three decades, meaning when growth is high, um, uh, that's good for uh, that's good for equities. It's bad for bonds because um, interest rates probably have to go up uh, when growth is low. Uh, that's good for bonds and bad for equities. And so they sort of hedge each other. Well, wait a second. If inflation is high, 
That's bad for equities, especially growth equities, and it's bad for bonds. All of a sudden, they're positively correlated to each other, and they don't hedge each other. You need something else to hedge in that scenario, probably real assets. So those relationships are not stable. They're very much environmentally dependent. So that's one issue you have to take into account. And then the other is um, the, the actual moves themselves are nonlinear, which is to say, okay, um, equities just went up five. Does that mean bonds went down two? Uh, or oil went up 10%. Does that mean equities went down three? Um, you can have, depending on the scenario, something move a lot and some other things not move at all. Um, and so building a balanced portfolio uh, requires not just building out a pie chart, but actually building a set of scenarios, some of which look historically and say, okay, how have things worked in different environments in the past? But also it's, and there's an art to this as well as a science, but try to proactively say, okay, let's imagine some environments we haven't experienced before um, and, and try to flex these portfolios to see how much they could lose. Because when we sit down with clients, you know, the way clients over the long term don't maximize their wealth is three things. They pay too much in fees, they don't take taxes into account, and they hide under their desk when the world gets scary. And the reason they hide under their desk when the world gets scary is maybe they're scared because the world is scary and they have to, sure. or maybe they're taking too much risk and they got to pay their mortgage or they have, you know, they got to fund a private equity business call or whatever it is. Um, and uh, they have 20% less money than they thought they had or 30% or 40% if they were over, you know, in a terrible situation right. because the equity market just went down 50. Um, that, you know, March 24th of 2020, we were buying equities across all of our clients and you have to be in a position to do that. Um, and the only way you can be in a position to do that is to not have taken too much risk uh, in the first place. February of 2020. Right. Um, and, uh, that makes a huge difference over the long term. And and understanding the risk inside of a portfolio is where, you know, is what is what we think we're really sophisticated at and just backing up. Yeah. I, mean, I was going to ask you, how, how do you how do you build models and measure that risk in a way that's different from what everybody else is doing? So it's not different from what a sophisticated hedge fund would do. Um, we're not we're not. There's nothing, if you looked at our risk systems uh, and you were an element or uh, Tudor or uh, Bridgewater, um, right. uh, where I worked a, a little while at Bridgewater back in the day, uh, Jim was at Element, uh, um, Mimi Duff, who joined us recently, was a Tudor. You know, it all would look familiar to you. Uh, um, and there's a whole variety of other levels of sophistication that some people have to bring to, to what they do versus what we do. Um, so we didn't we didn't invent this. What what I will say is that um, we haven't found anybody else in the wealth management uh, space that has taken the time to build the systems we have. And you can't just buy stuff off the shelf. So you need something that pulls in every position across every portfolio from the custodians every day. You need um, a ability to characterize each of those positions and their relationships to each other, right? So if it's a bond, uh, you know, you don't just need the um, name and the credit and whatever, you need the duration uh, um, and you need to break that bond down into its component risks. Uh, if it's equities, you need to think about where it is geographically 
and the size uh, of the company and, and sort of map it. And the industry a, and its to vertical. An yeah. To an to index that you can make some assumptions about in terms of how it will relate to others. So um, with, so with. Then you build with, your stress tests. With you inflation say, going up, uh, interest rates going up, everything being in a state of disarray, war in Ukraine, how are you advising clients today in terms of wealth management? Yeah, so we entered the year, um, you know, the, the other thing about talking about risk all the time, just throw this out there, uh, is that if you talk about risk all the time, um, you can you can scare yourself uh, or scare your clients or right. make it seem like, oh man, we should always hold cash. Uh, just because I, you know, we entered the year thinking equities were expensive, technology, growth tech, especially expensive, interest rates likely to go up, and um, and inflation, you know, underappreciated, even though uh, it was certainly a big story across headlines, underpriced in markets. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you go to, you know, 0% equities or 20% equities when your long run benchmark is 50. So for every client, we focus on the risk tolerance that they have. And that could, that's both an emotional thing. You know, how much volatility am I willing to take for my personal portfolio, my family's portfolio? That's very different person to person. Part of the fun of this business is getting to know people like that. It's the same. Every foundation is pretty much the same. Every pension is you're mapping their, you know, long run liabilities and duration matching it. it. You know, it's not that complicated. Talking to people about how they think about risk is complicated. And it could also be like, look, I, you know, I bought a house. I have a, I have a um, vacation home. I'm, I just quit my job because I'm starting a new business. Like, oh man, we got to rein in your risk because you got a lot going on right now. Yeah. Um, or like, hey, I just sold my business. I'm sitting on a bunch of cash. Like, okay, well maybe you have some more risk tolerance. But getting that right is the start. And then, you know, once you have that baseline, whether it's 50% equities, 30% equities, 60, whatever that is, and the mix of real assets and bonds around it, um, the our job then is to sort of tactically tilt based on where we think the environment is to try to um, smooth the return stream over time and get as much as we can out of capital markets. Uh, and so how do we enter this year? Just as an example, we were overweight real assets, um, uh, specifically um, uh, commodities, uh, metals, ags, um, and energy commodities in part with uh, concern around um, uh, what's going on in, in uh, Europe today. Um, we were underweight equities, specifically growth tech. Uh, they were the most expensively priced and they were expensively priced in part because the discount rate used on their future cash flows was really low because the Fed has kept interest rates so low. And our view was interest rates have to go up um, uh, to, to moderate inflation. Um, and so those were sort of the primary tilts. But we're, you know, if you were 50 percent equity benchmark, we were at forty-five percent equities. We we're also tilted internationally because those equities were cheaper, a little bit in Europe, a little bit in emerging markets. Um, and that, you know, that that was a, um, a drag on performance in twenty twenty-one and a and a boon to performance so far this year. Um, I think. Uh, but all those tilts are around the edges. As long as we are getting the risk, overall risk tolerance right, so that in going back to March of 2020, somebody's not calling us and saying, hey, man, you got to take me to cash because I can't afford to make 
know, I can't afford to pay my housekeeper. What have you done? Um, uh, or whatever. Or, man, this is scary. I need to go to cash. It's like, no, you need to be, a, we're looking at the horizon and it's a stormy time right now, but that's what you pay us for is to manage through those times. And, you know, uh, I was at Lehman through the financial crisis. My partner, Jim, ran, ran the largest derivatives book uh, in the world through the financial crisis. Like we know how to trade these environments. We know how to rebalance at the right time and, and build a framework for doing that. And that's, that's why you hired us to take care of this for you. Um, cool. So getting that right is important. Now, I want to shift the, the remaining discussion to alternative investments. Um, what is an alternative investment? How, how would you def define it? You specialize in, in creating a fund. You've created a fund that does alternative investing. How do we um, <clears throat> take advantage of it through GenTrust, Catenary, and other sources? And, and why is it important to have al alternative investments in a portfolio? Um, well... Uh, it is, and this will be the next half hour. <laughs> yeah, no, um, it's important for some, but not for all. Uh, so, you know, the first, while I am run alternative investments for GenTrust, uh, and we do a lot of it through a sister business, um, called Catenary, um, uh, which, um, uh, well, we can talk about, but, um, uh, you know, alternative investments broadly refers to um, anything outside of traditional liquid asset classes. So uh, um, anything outside of equities, bonds, and, uh, you know, futures on commodities and, and commodity indices and things like that. Um, so it could be real estate, it could be private equity, it could be hedge funds. It's a catch-all term that is mm -hmm. most used by people in the industry as a way to sell folks on paying higher fees. So that's a cynical that, way of putting it. Yeah. So with that as background, I mean, it's sort of a um, business model in search of a business strategy. You, you, uh, you, you figured out if you call yourself an alternative investment, uh, you can charge higher fees and maybe it's useful, maybe it isn't, but, but you put a lot of money in your own pocket in the process. Um, so we use alternatives sparingly, uh, but uh, we still find they play an important role in our clients' portfolios. Um, so what is that role? It's, it's pretty straightforward. Either an alternative investment needs to net of fees and taxes, offer substantially better, meaning higher returns or expected returns, I should say, than what you can get in traditional investments, or um, they need to offer returns of a completely different character. So something that'll be uncorrelated is the way, is the way I refer to it. It's something that uh, equities could go up, equities could go down. It's going to generate return uh, in a different way. Maybe it goes up, maybe it goes down. But the fact that equities are going up or down or bonds are going up or down is not going to be the primary or even a minor driver of the performance of an alternative investment. Finding those uncorrelated investments is is quite difficult. Um, and that's where I focus most of my time. Sometimes they could actually be negatively correlated. We like to find alternative investments that are what we call long volatility, which means they they do better when markets get volatile and markets get volatile. Uh, if this was something people didn't realize until about 1987, but, but markets volatility goes up when equity markets go down. Um, straightforward, if you think about 
calm markets with a lot of forecasting. People are willing to take risks. More money flows into equities. The market goes up. Uh, something surprising happens. Um, it's almost certainly to the downside. Uh, people rein in their risk tolerance uh, and, and market equity markets go down. So if you can find something that's able to make some money, but also make a lot of money uh, when when markets get volatile, it's probably a good balance to, the, to everything else that's going on in your portfolio. What strategies are working today in alternative investments for you? So, um, you know, we have we have a handful. Um, but again, this is the icing on the cake, not the cake. Um, and uh, recently, um, there's been a, a lot of we've found a lot of interesting to do things to do in the private equity realm. So um, public biotech is incredibly volatile uh, and difficult to invest in. Um, uh, but there is tremendous innovation uh, happening at the bio, you know, in biotech. And we've found uh, we've, last year we found or through a relationship of mine I've had for a long time we were able to uh, get capacity in a top tier uh, biotech private equity fund um, that basically starts up um, uh, private companies that then um, I think they've had thirty plus exits now some into the public markets but some just sold to big pharma uh, and what we've seen is a tremendous level of innovation uh, as well as tremendous interest from big pharma to restock their pipeline as more of their drugs um, go to um, generics. So that's, you know, that's an opportunity that you can't find in public markets. You just can't get it. Um, so that's an example of something that we think has better returns than what's available in public markets and is, and is different enough to, to warrant inclusion. Um, uh, so, you know, another one-off, again, sort of niche, but also private equity we've, we've been investing behind is um, there's tremendous innovation and momentum and growth behind uh, carbon capture technology. Um, and we, again, you have to have sort of the right set of relationships to find your way into these opportunities. Um, but we, we are in sort of the foremost uh, uh, focused investor in that space um, that understands the technology, understands the landscape, uh, and is just been doing incredibly well over the last year. They've, they just fully invested their first fund and are now launching their second fund. Um, and so again, that's, those are private technologies that um, are being adopted very quickly, especially in Europe, given all the momentum behind um, uh, ameliorating uh, global warming. And uh, that's not an opportunity set available in public markets. In fact, to the extent anybody's gone public in that space, it's gotten way overvalued and spacked and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you probably don't want to own those. But if you can be in the private companies as they're just starting their growth inflection, that's going to be. So those are private equity opportunities. I'll give you two other quick examples. Um, one is uh, uh, we seeded a high frequency business in the currency space. Um, it struggled the last couple of years because it's a business that makes more money when markets get volatile and with interest rates incredibly low and uh, volatility low, um, especially in currencies, uh, it it sort of flatlined down small. Um, but now central banks are starting to raise interest rates and they're doing it at different speeds and uh, massive sanctions are going in against Russia. And that's going to affect Europe differently than it's going to affect the U.S. And so we're starting to see real uh, movements in currencies. 
um, right at the same time that everybody's equities portfolios are coming under stress. So we think that's a small sliver of client portfolios, but likely to generate attractive returns at a period where other things in client portfolios may may struggle. Um, uh, so that's that's a hedge fund uh, that uh, we think is is particularly interesting. Uh, and again, it's a it's a hedge fund. You know, a lot of hedge funds lost money in January and February. Well, you were paying them a lot of fees, and they lost money along with the equity markets. That's that's not actually that useful. But but paying somebody fees to build out a high frequency business that's going to do well um, when when the sh- shit hits the fan, pardon my language, uh, <laughs> um, in the rest of your portfolio, that 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 could have value, um, especially as we're trying to make sure we have the right level of risk on for, for clients, especially for clients who are um, more risk averse, I'd say. And then the last one is we've been an, we've been an early in, and consistent investor in a portfolio of rail car assets, um, not as illiquid as private equity, uh, the biotech or the other investments I talked about, um, uh, not as high returning either, um, but incredibly tax efficient uh, for a variety of reasons that's probably beyond the scope of this conversation um, and offers a very attractive yield. So, um, you know, it's 10 to 14 percent net returns, tax deferred, essentially, um, almost like you invested in an IRA, mm-hmm. uh, incredibly stable and economic, you know, resilient to the, econ- the broader economy, again, for a variety of reasons that's beyond the scope of this. Um, and, you know, from our perspective, that sort of is a good one to talk about how we think about adding alts to a portfolio. The underlying risk is really credit risk. Well, investment grade bonds and it really you know, investment grade credit risk, essentially, and investment grade bonds are offering low single digits. Uh, and this is offering, you know, 10 to 14 percent net. OK, well, it's better. Yeah, but it's illiquid. You can sell your credit. You can sell your investment grade bonds anytime and rotate them into something else. So that has real value. Um, and so you move into the rail car because it's better, but it has to be substantially better to warrant the illiquidity. That's uh, that's a great summary. And, and what, what Eli Cohen has just told us is investing is not as simple as picking stocks and bonds and putting them in a portfolio. It's measuring risk. It's analyzing risk of the investments and being able to do it in a way that's very sophisticated, which is something that GenTrust has done since its inception and continues to do for its clients. And that's why they present a unique alternative for the investor in the marketplace today. It's not just your average registered investment advisor that's, you know, picking ETFs or something like that. You really have to evaluate risk. You have to understand risk in order to do it the right way, to invest in the right way. And that's why they have sophisticated investors that rely on them for investment advice. So this has been a great tutorial. I really appreciate your time today and teaching us about not just the the markets in general, but about alternative investments. Thank you. Sure. Happy to happy to talk anytime. So we've been talking to Eli Cohen of GenTrust. If you want to know more about them, you should visit their website, which is GenTrustWM, right? That's correct. And um, by the way, stay tuned for an educational moment where I'll break down into very simple terms what alternative investments are, trying to simplify some of the things that Eli was saying, but not too simple because it's really complex stuff. So stay tuned for our educational moment. Thanks for listening to Blueprint for Wealth. 
Hi, welcome back to Blueprint for Wealth and your educational moment. And today we're talking about alternative investments. We just heard about an expert from an expert in alternative investments. Let's learn a little bit about them. So let's talk about what an alternative investment is. How do they work? And what's the regulatory environment today for them? And what are some of the AI alternative investment strategies that we're looking at today? An alternative investment is an unconventional financial asset. It's unconventional or not conventional in the sense that it's not cash, it's not stock, and it's not a bond or mutual fund, which means that it's something different. And what could that be? Well, it could be a tangible asset or an intangible asset. The tangible assets include precious metals, like gold and platinum. They include commodities, such as real assets that are mostly natural resources, maybe agricultural products, oil, natural gas. It may include real estate and personal property, such as equipment or antique vehicles or fancy vehicles, such as Maseratis and Ferraris, and other hard assets that fall into this category. And it may include collectibles. There's a great list on the website that deals with alternative investments for uh, Investopedia, and they list the following as uh, potential collectibles that people engage in investing in for profit, such as rare wines. I mentioned vintage cars, fine art, Mint condition toys. Imagine that Buzz Lightyear toy that has never been opened before in a mint package. Stamps, coins, and of course, my, one of my favorites, baseball cards. Intangibles include hedge funds, private equity and venture capital, and private debt and structured products. When we're talking about private equity, that really includes a broad category that refers to capital investment that's made by investors into private companies or essentially companies that are not listed on a public exchange like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. There are many subsets of private equity. Venture capital is one of them. That focuses typically on startups and early stage ventures. Also growth capital which helps more mature companies expand or restructure or buyout funds where a company or one of its divisions is purchased outright by a merchant capital fund. An important part of private equity is the relationship between the investing firm and the company that receives the capital. Private equity companies often provide more capital to the firms they invest in they also provide benefits like industry experience or talent sourcing or mentorship to the founders of the business. Private debt typically refers to investments that are not financed by your typical lenders like banks or traded on an open market. The private part of this term is really important. It refers to the investment instrument itself rather than the borrower of the debt because both public and private companies can borrow privately. Private debt is leveraged when companies need additional capital 
to grow their businesses. In fact, private equity firms often use private debt sources to help finance acquisitions of private companies. The companies that issue the capital are typically referred to as private debt funds, and they make money in two ways, through interest payments and the repayment of the initial loan, plus maybe an equity kicker on top of the initial loan. A hedge fund is an investment fund that trades relatively liquid assets and uses various investment strategies with the goal of earning a high return on the investment. Hedge fund managers specialize in a variety of skills to execute their strategies, such as long-short equity or market-neutral investing or volatility arbitrage or quantitative strategies that use algorithms to trade the securities. They're usually exclusive and available only to institutional investors such as public endowments of universities or pension funds. How do they work? Well, as I mentioned, the, the alternative investment world typically favors institutional investors because it requires a lot of capital and a lot of uh, certainty to invest in these products. It also may be extended typically to accredited investors, wealthy investors, people who have more than a certain level of income and are sophisticated at investing. Because of the way these funds are structured and these assets are uh, invested in, they're illiquid. They cannot be sold easily like stocks and bonds can be on the public market. And because of that, they're harder to value. There may only be one kind of gold coin that is that exists in the world of that specific type from that specific year, and therefore, how do you value it? Or a piece of artwork. Auction houses typically get involved with that. Appraisers get involved, but it's really what a willing buyer is willing to pay a willing seller. And again, AIs are uncorrelated to conventional asset classes, which means that they move up or down independently of where the stock market and the bond market go. Importantly, they're unregulated. Now that doesn't mean they're completely unregulated as you'll see in a minute, but because of their unique qualities and because they're so illiquid and it requires a significant amount of risk tolerance to invest in, they're not available to everyone. Now when I say AIs are generally unregulated, it's the AI funds and managers that could be subject to regulation. First of all, Limited partnerships and limited liability companies are formed under state law and subject to state law regulation. The Investors Investment Advisors Act of 1940 may cause alternative investment fund managers and investment advisors who sell these funds to be treated as investment advisors who must register in order to sell these funds. The private fund advisor exemption may actually exempt many of these large fund managers, but most people who get involved with alternative investments may need to register under the Investment Advisors Act. And then states also independently regulate and require registration of investment advisors that sell alternative investments. The Investment Company Act of 1980 may require alternative investment funds to register with the Securities Exchange Commission if they exceed certain size, more than 100 investors, or do not contain 
qualified purchasers who have a certain level of assets and sophistication. Otherwise, they're not licensed, they're not authorized to do business, and they're not regulated to invest in and sell ownership interests in AI funds. So because of that, you've got to be cautious in what you invest in, in terms of alternative investments. So the AI strategies that are uh, incorporated today, again, institutional investors, pension funds, endowments of large universities, uh, big uh, union investment funds have lots of funds available to allocate a portion of their portfolio to diversify the portfolio and invest in alternative investments. These investments, again, have a low correlation to stocks and bonds and cash. Accredited investors also may participate through their investment advisory firms. But today, non-accredited, regular retail investors can participate in exchange-traded funds and mutual funds that engage in the investment in alternative investments. But the fees and the risks of those investments usually are quite high. And again, hard assets like gold or oil and gas investments or real estate offer a hedge against inflation and may make sense. If you want to know more about alternative investments, we can refer you to a qualified investment advisor or investment, investment manager to help you make decisions on whether or not you should be investing in alternative investments. I'm Wayne Zell, and thanks for listening to Blueprint for Wealth and our educational moment. And tune in next time for a special guest and another special topic. Have a great week.